Hello, and welcome to the GovLab's Collective Intelligence Podcast. Today, we speak with Jonathan Wachtel, Sustainability Manager in the city of Lakewood, Colorado, about the Sustainable Neighborhoods Program. For more information about this series or other collective intelligence research, visit thegovlab.org slash collective intelligence. Thank you so much for, for having me. Um, I'm the sustainability manager for the city of Lakewood, Colorado. We're a city of about 150,000 people. We are a direct suburb of Denver. We're just to the west. If any of you have come to Colorado and come in through Denver and driven up into uh, the Rocky Mountains, you've had to go through Lakewood on your way up there. Um, and I've been with the city of Lakewood now for more years than I care to admit, um, had not for, about to hit 14 years with the city, but not always in this role. So I started as a, as a neighborhood planner, and that's really where, um, with a passion for sustainability, and uh, this program that we're going to talk about today really grew out of uh, my hands-on experience in that role. So take us back to 2010 and explain why you started the Sustainable Neighborhoods Program uh, what is it, and in particular, what problem were you trying to solve? I got to take the time machine back to 2010. Um, you know, there was a couple different problems we were trying to solve by creating this program. And in, a, in like a nutshell and really high level, um, quick explanation of what the program is, is, is a system where we have a points that neighborhoods can earn by organizing themselves and taking on um, projects related to sustainability, but in that definition, it's very broad. So, you know, these could be anything that really supports any related sustainability goals from building community to energy to water, climate, um, economic sustainability. Uh, so it's a pretty broad um, parameters of what neighbors could take on and uh, they apply to enter the program. We help them get organized. They take on projects with really just a little bit of support from us. And if they earn enough credits, um, we certify them as a sustainable neighborhood and they get some custom signage. It's a pretty basic, simple program. There's no big pot of gold for the neighborhoods. It's really about the recognition and really helping them organize. And the idea for this really came, uh, came together because we had a couple different problems that I started to notice in my work as a neighborhood planner. Uh, one of those being that we would like a lot of organizations get a bunch of involvement and investment from community members who showed up for typical neighborhood type of planning meetings, shared all their ideas, went through a visioning process, helped us identify goals and outcomes that they'd like to see in their neighborhood for, you know, kind of like a 10 year planning vision. Uh, and when we were done, we took that plan, said thank you and went back to City Hall and tried really hard to get other departments and the rest of the city once it was adopted to use that plan to implement things. But that in and of itself is a big challenge. And we left the neighborhood kind of waiting for us to do things. There was no tangible way for um, those residents to then kind of help actually implement the plan they, they tried to, you know, they had put all this time into. And that felt strange to me, right? Like we had all these people that were interested and invested and we needed a mechanism to actually put them to work. At, at the same time, you know, there was a growing movement uh, and pressure on the city to really take on a role, a leadership role around sustainability ideas. 
uh, and as someone in the, with a background in natural resource management and conservation biology and city planning, that was an area that was of particular importance to me. And we had formed some internal committees at the city, kind of first steps. There was no formal uh, functioning position dedicated to sustainability or division or department. Uh, but because we had this informal internal sustainability uh, team and I was a co-chair with a, with a colleague of mine, uh, I was getting funneled all the citizen requests, all the um, complaints, all the questions on why the city wasn't doing more. Those were all landing on my desk. And so I had these kind of two things happening at the same time, right? Like a, a real need to figure out a way to catalyze residents uh, to help keep momentum going and make things happen. And a lot of pressure from the community to do things that I had to just say no to because we had no resources, no money, um, no time allocated to help. And so the idea was how do we, there's gotta be a way to leverage this passion and these interests of the community to help solve this problem. Especially when the typical question or complaint or inquiry about the city's role in sustainability came in was often prefaced with a statement, um, something like, you know, I'm a retired um, engineer and I think, and worked in renewable energy, and I think the city should be fill in the blank. I'm a master gardener, why isn't the city doing more to protect our soils and our pollinators? You should be doing X, Y, Z. So it's pretty clear that this expertise was just all around us. If we could figure out how we could tap into it. Jonathan, give us, give us some examples of um, projects that Lakewood residents, these retired engineers and master gardeners uh, have created through the program or are doing now. Tell us a little bit about how the project is working these days. Well, I can tell you that since 2012, which is when the real program launched, in 2010 we had some, we did a pilot and it didn't go very well actually, so there's something we could discuss later on how to handle those types of uh, first failures. Uh, but since 2012, um, I think the latest numbers that we just pulled is that we've had more than 27,000 residents participate um, in programs, events, and activities. That doesn't mean those are all unique, but that's if you add up all the attendance and participation from all those events, you're, you're over 27,000. And, and we've had more than a- Lakewood is how big again? Lakewood's 150,000 residents. Okay. Yeah. And over 100 projects completed um, through the program. So there's a huge uh, range of outcomes that we've seen and those are small little ideas that residents have brought to fruition like putting together a lunch for seniors in the neighborhood that meets once a month and supports a different local business or sponsoring a bike to work day station to really big undertakings like building community gardens like um, working to integrate recycling into lunchrooms and neighborhood schools to uh, participating in much larger planning efforts, um, you know, big infrastructure projects, big planning projects, really big problem solving efforts and everything in between. So it's been uh, remarkable to see, see the range of outcomes in, of all those projects. And your office is not very big. How do you, uh, what does the city do to support these projects? And what's the relationship between the city, between the institution and the residents that really makes this happen? So when this started, uh, this, we ran the program out of our comprehensive planning division, which is the long range planning function of the city. Uh, for those of you not in, uh, familiar with planning field, there tends to be kind of a, a development 
review short-term planning side of the of the um, of most departments that look at vertical development and zoning and things coming out of the ground and then the long-range comprehensive planning function which looks at how the city should grow and provide services and you know uh, uh, long-term vision for what the city should be and so uh, the neighborhood planning group was within that long-range planning function of the city uh, and we had no budget in the neighborhood planning section to support this so it was really just based on pocket change and uh, and begging for help and assistance from other departments since that time uh, we actually have a sustainability division we are within planning but we're we are our own division and we have uh, myself included three full-time employees and uh, one three-quarter time employee who actually administers this program and supports other um, social sustainability projects and community um, uh, outreach we budget uh, I mean there's that person's salary and then you know maybe fifteen thousand twenty thousand um, dollars on years when we're putting up new signage for those neighborhoods um, so it's a pretty slim amount of resources that, that comes from our general fund uh, but really, you know, the, the bulk of the hours and the work um, and the resources come from the neighborhoods, putting in the time, finding community partners. And, you know, we, we support that. We provide uh, help with writing, for looking and writing grants, with um, printing, with, you know, um, IT infrastructure, things that we can provide with really low limited additional cost. One of the things you've told me in the past about the project is um, we've talked about sort of who participates and one of the challenges you've described is really um, a diversity of participation. I'm wondering since we've talked about this, um, what steps you've taken to build a really diverse community of participants or if that still remains a challenge? Well, in full transparency, I would identify that as still one of our biggest short shortcomings and I'm not sure I'll ever want be able to I, I would love if I ever felt comfortable saying yes we've achieved uh, a great level of diversity and um, inclusivity in this program I'm not you know I think that's always going to be something that's hard and that we'll be chasing and can always probably do a better job of well maybe let me also ask you first if yeah. your impression as far as who is participating and who's not sure I think to give it some context I you know um, Lakewood as a community has always been, um, it, you know, pretty hands off. We're not a incredibly progressive community where I put us right kind of in the middle, you know, we're not incredibly conservative, but we're not particularly progressive. And so at the origins of this program, um, to get buy in without resources and to try something new, which is not something that local governments uh, or any governments really tend to do very easily or very well, um, was a commitment to really make this completely voluntary. So there was a lot of period of time at the beginning of this program where, um, you know, we really were hands off in terms of trying to steer who participated or how they were doing their outreach. We were really supporting neighborhoods, but not trying not to tell them what to do. Uh, as a result, the typical participant was certainly middle class or wealthier and tended to be Caucasian, heavily skewed towards um, towards women and, you know, um, I would say, you know, stay at home parents or um, retirees. It, it, it's not fair to paint that completely, but I would say if, you know, that was probably the, the majority of 
um, the leadership anyway. That doesn't necessarily mean that's who was participating and showing up at events, but that was a lot of who was getting organized. Um, so we've done a, a few things over the years um, and really ramping up in the last year or two uh, to try to help expand our participation. And let me add another demographic to that, which is really important, which is it tends to be, it tended to really be single family homeowners as well. And I think that's really important um, differentiation, especially in a community like Lakewood, which is a first ring suburb where we are in um, constant political turmoil over density and whether we're losing our single family neighborhoods and how many stories is acceptable. And, you know, we have a major housing shortage and crisis and things are not affordable here. Um, our latest sustainability report we dig into the living wage index, which really gives you a key idea of how much someone needs to earn to be able to afford to live and, and with housing and provide for their basic needs. And barely over 50% of our residents in the whole city earn a living wage at this point, mostly because of housing costs. And if you start to look at that by ethnicity, it's really not a pretty picture. And we see those numbers go way down for uh, fam you know, households of color. So we've got some major challenges there. And I think that, uh, um, so that differentiation between home ownership and rental and multifamily is a really big issue in, our, in a community like ours. So I will say that that was also a key piece of the demographic. So we've done a few things. First of all, when we open this up to new neighborhoods, we now make sure all the materials that are going out um, for the application process are in multiple languages, uh, our distribution channels have become way more strategic in terms of getting those through a lot of different outlets that won't just reach kind of the usual suspects that follow um, city publications. Uh, we have offered translation services to all the neighborhoods and are encouraging them to do so um, for all of their events. And actually we created a whole category of ways that neighborhood could earn credits by putting together communication and outreach plans and we give them templates and we provide support and embedded within that <clears throat> are a lot of key pieces of that um, communication strategy that can help reach both, you know, uh, different segments of their neighborhood in terms of housing and socioeconomic status and um, by language. So we're hoping that's going to make, make a difference. Um, I'm not sure I've got any metrics to measure how effective that's been. Um, we have also embedded in the application process for new neighborhoods, how they want to, like, you know, they, they're supposed to give us some of their initial ideas and we want to see in that how they're going to include everyone in the neighborhood. So really, you know, it's not just geared towards xeriscaping single family yards or, you know, uh, putting solar systems on top of people's homes that can afford it, but it's more holistic than that. Uh, and then we've got a couple neighborhoods that on their own are really digging into this. Uh, one of our neighborhoods has set up liaisons within their leadership team to really reach out to like multifamily and faith com communities and service-based communities uh, within the cities or within their neighborhoods. So that's exciting. We'll, hopefully that'll, that'll help as well. Um, those are some of the steps. I'm probably missing a couple, but we're trying. Um, I think it's going to take some time to see if that is really working or not. 
Great. I want to I want to ask you a couple of brief additional questions, and we have some questions coming in in the chat that I want to bring in. Um, but tell us just briefly uh, why you think sustainable neighborhoods work so well, and why it's more effective in your view than a traditional approach to sustainability planning. Well, I think I don't think it's an either or in terms of a traditional approach to sustainability planning. I think any plan needs champions and any organization that wants to make things happen is going to um, and actually implement their plans needs some mechanism to actually make things happen on the ground. Otherwise, you know, I think you identified it really clearly in your syllabus when I was looking at it and the description of some of your classes that you have these traditional tools that governments like to use, right? You know, we can write new regulations and new standards into how our built environment operates, try to retrofit with big expensive projects, our infrastructure. Um, but there's all these other tools out there uh, that can be utilized. And so I think um, having boots on the ground, having buy-in for the community gives you a lot of advantages to help you implement your plans. It gives you a whole wealth of knowledge and expertise that there's no way you're going to have on staff. And if you don't have it, you're going to have to pay for it through consulting services. And that often is also going to be a narrow set of views, whoever you pick to um, be your, your consulting team, to be your, your, your brain power behind a project. And here we're crowdsourcing that information. Um, there's a political benefit to it, even though we don't really talk about that a lot because we're not trying to create political pressure as public servants. That's not our, our goal. But, you know, if there is something that's important to a neighborhood and they show up to support it, that's going to help when ultimately when uh, elected officials need to, to make decisions. Um, and that's a whole topic on how we really try to make sure we don't cross any inappropriate lines there and, and, and help the neighborhoods kind of find that that space since it is a government program. Um, so I think those are all beneficial. And then there's a whole, I mean, it's also beneficial for the neighborhood. We're creating this safe space for people. And I think what's really impressive is that um, even though we have all these tools to like share our thoughts and our ideas, it's it all has become more and more hollow, right? Like it's an echo chamber. Uh, for most of us, it's there's so much out there, it's hard for anybody to really be heard. Uh, without being outrageous, which is its own problem. And we've created by accident almost this program, like a credible safe space for somebody to take something they're passionate about and that they're experts on and then share it with their neighbors. Um, and it's a safer space than even some of the like next door, some of those platforms where you never know who's going to troll you. I mean, the, we're helping them have a take an idea, think it through, turn it into something tangible and then be leaders in their neighborhood. And it, it's, it's incredible to see um, what that does for the outcomes, but also for those people. I mean, they appreciate it so much and they get so excited and so invested in this opportunity to like make direct impact in their neighborhood, connect with their neighbors, build relationships, and then see something happen because of something they care about. So those are all really, really amazing outcomes. Tatiana uh, has a question for you. I'm going to ask her to ask it out loud very briefly. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us. How did you all decide what incentives work best to encourage individuals to participate in neighborhood sustainability? Um, I also wanted to know, do you have any other ideas 
you are thinking about to incentivize or increase buy-in from those who are marginalized from neighborhood sustainability participation right now? Um, two really good questions. So the first question is how do we decide what to incentivize? Um, really it was just anything we could actually do that had really no cost to it. You know, I mean, a lot of this program back to the benefits is leveraging the resources that we already have, the connections we already have, the brain power that we already have and, and kind of providing a little more concierge service to these neighborhoods, right. To say, Hey, let, let us help you. Um, so, you know, we're providing that as far as incentive, we did won't try to gamify it a little bit, right? I mean, we created a certification program, so they earn points. Um, there's a, if you go to the website and you look at the credit system, there's a whole way that they earn their points, right? And if they're building a neighborhood resource, they can earn credits. If they are hosting a workshop, um, or a special event, there's a system for how they earn credits based on participation. Um, there's an implementation credit system where they set goals, both near-term, mid-term, and long-term, and they are, can earn credits along the way. So that works really well for something like building a community garden, which is a long process, or, um, you know, we have a lot of neighborhoods that set goals for things like energy conservation or one of, um, the exciting projects I'm really psyched about right now is, is one of our neighborhoods that's really trying to take care of their tree canopy. And we don't have very good, fun, we don't really have any funded programs through the city to help preserve our aging tree canopy or to plant new ones. Um, and this neighborhood is, is a kind of an older neighborhood and they set goals to get 100 trees planted. And when they hit that, they said, whoa, that was easy. Let's do more, you know. And um, so we have this system where as they hit these targets and goals they set for themselves, they can earn the points. Once they earn enough points in a given year, we recognize them. We put up custom signage. Um, there's a, um, if you look at the logo, it's built so that every neighborhood kind of gets their name within the, you know, within the structure of the logo for the program. And then they can add their certification years around the outside. Um, and we spend money. One of the few things I really thought was important to spend money on was like really nice signage. So it didn't just look like a neighborhood watch type of little metal sign. Like these are nice, substantial, customized signs that, you know, we give each neighborhood to once they earn their hundred credits and become an outstanding neighborhood. And then they have to recertify every year. So I had no idea if that was going to be motivational, but we found out right away that it was like there, just the community recognition is really powerful. And we also make sure that in non COVID times, um, we get them in front of city council every year that the mayor and their city councilors, you know, are sending them, you know, shaking their hands and sending them well wishes and we do press releases and just get them some recognition. So that's as far as incentives, that's really where it is. Um, but uh, there's no big pot of gold. I mean, people are doing this because they care and they want to feel like they're, they're giving something. Your second question was, other ideas for building equity and more universal engagement. Um, we are lucky enough to have helped other communities in Colorado launch this program and some of them have um, dedicated staff to those particular types of programs and issues. Um, I think we'll probably get to what's next, but we're forming a nonprofit organization to be the umbrella for the Sustainable Neighborhood Network as more cities are interested. So, 
Um, and on kind of the top of the list of many things we need to do is to address that issue. And I'm excited to have the um, expertise and brain power of, you know, the city and county of Denver, city of Fort Collins, other communities, um, board members who have been involved with those issues to help us um, really strategize. So if you all have ideas, please, this is like one of our biggest challenges and something that um, we are really, really hoping to, um, to make some inroads on. In the interest of time, what I want to do is take Nana's question um, and really put this, put her question to you around really advice you would have for public problem solvers about how to design a successful project. And she asks you, what fulfillment do you find in solving public problems as you currently do? So I think, in other words, advice to them and to others who will listen to this recording about the approach that you've taken, um, what it's meant for you personally, and uh, what you see the impact being. If you can't tell, I mean, I unfortunately don't get to spend a ton of time on this program anymore because it's been successful. That's actually helped I mean, I don't think we would have a sustainability manager, someone in my position or a sustainability division at the city of Lakewood if this program hadn't been successful. It predates that function. And because of the impact we were able to show, because of the momentum it built in the community, the pride that people in elected positions um, at the time and still today felt regardless of maybe where they sit on a political spectrum of what was happening in their neighborhoods, enabled this to happen. So as far as its impact, um, if you can't tell, like this program is still like gets me so excited and, and Alyssa Vogan, who's our program coordinator and the first uh, director of the nonprofit that's um, brand new as of about a month ago, um, is doing an incredible job growing this and, um, and, and, and building it. So, so it all just gets me excited. I think that the other impacts that this is having that we haven't talked about that really gets me excited is, I mean, for, for someone who is passionate, and I'm sure many of you are, if you see problems in the world, you wanna make it a better place and you wanna make an impact. And there's probably a lot of you that have a little bit of a fighting spirit in you that wanna um, rearrange systems uh, to make them a little bit better. Um, and I certainly have that uh, in me as well. So there's something about swimming upstream and getting enough momentum to kind of break through the, the dams that may lay, lay ahead of you um, that have really, felt great when you can can make some some changes um, and have given me the you know momentum and credibility to really um, take on other big challenges um, to help the city put together a formal sustainability plan with targets addressing carbon emissions and renewable energy and um, you know take a seat at the table in a regional context to advance those issues so that's all been been amazing um, and, and on that that point I think that the trick with especially you know large organizations whether they're government nonprofit or even businesses is change is really difficult because there's risk involved and one thing that this program has done and any way that you could design mechanisms to do this will be to your advantage is to if you can create a safe place that you can test new things new ideas um, that's invaluable right i mean the if our parks department cares and wants to make a shift in the type of uh, products they're using to manage turf grass, um, to meet the requirements of the state to manage noxious weeds on 
tens of thousands of acres um, and not use certain chemicals, that's a huge risk that they're taking. It may obviously be important environmentally, but the phone will start ringing off the hook when Canada thistles growing in a soccer field and everyone's getting pricked. And when things don't look as beautiful as they once did, someone in that department's phone's going to be exploding and emails are going to be rolling in and they're going to take the blame for something because they took the risk to try to do something right. That's really, really hard for someone, for anybody to take those types of risks. Now, if you have a neighborhood and you've created a place where you can test something out and that neighborhood says, we care about this, why don't you try it on our park and we're all bought in, now you've created a safe place to try something new. And so, and if it fails, that's okay too, right? No one's got to lose it you know, or be in trouble or take the fall. So um, I think if you're trying to design something that creates change, you know, there's something to be said for incrementalism, for trying little things. I mean, you don't want everything to always just be a pilot or a test or you and not be able to be scaled up, but, but it is an important piece of the tool belt to have that space carved out where you can try something with relatively low risk. I think that's really key. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another exciting episode. Again, check out thegovlab.org slash collective intelligence.